0: The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, AM 1220 KNEOW presents... New Focus on Wealth with Certified Financial Planner, Chad Burton, drawing from his 20-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New Focus on Wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host
1: for New Focus on Wealth, Chad Burton. Welcome into the show. I am your host, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. If you have a money question for the show, love to hear them. Just shoot me an email, chad at chadburton.com. Let's talk about the, the stock market. Received a couple of emails regarding a pullback. This is kind of my fear when the market has such a stellar year and you have a small pullback and people get really worried. And, and look, as of the close of the market yesterday on January 18th, it's a 4% pullback in the S&P 500. That's, that's not a big deal. Usually I have five, you know, 7% corrections or so a year on a normal year. Um now we've had a 7% pullback in the Nasdaq which is much more tech oriented and only a 2.6% in the Dow Jones Industrial Average and indexes are getting a little annoying to me. Um you know and as everybody in, indexed over the last couple of years it's definitely pushing a lot of money into the same stocks and let me try to explain a little bit. The S&P 500 has become a very tech index. If we look at the weighting today of the S&P 500 where you think you own an equal amount of 500 companies, and as I've mentioned in many shows, you don't, it's really about 50 companies that control the entire direction of the S&P 500. Because as of right now, the S&P 500 is 6.8% Apple, 6.5% Microsoft, 4.3% Alphabet, 3.9% Amazon, and 2.3% Tesla. So. You know, a lot of clients at Apple, for example, and they think they sell Apple and just buy the S P five hundred index. Well, you're you're all of a sudden you're selling Apple and putting your money where it's already six point eight percent Apple and six point five percent Microsoft. The S P five hundred index has changed a lot in the last ten years. If we look back to twenty eleven, check this out. In twenty eleven, S P five hundred much more diversified. It was 3.6% ExxonMobil, 3.3% Apple, 1.9% Chevron, 1.9% IBM. IBM, obviously a company that's just misstep after misstep. So that's not anywhere close now. Um, and only 1.7% Microsoft. But it is a market cap weighted index. And so Apple, Microsoft, uh, Alphabet, via Google, Amazon, Tesla, these have become the largest companies in the United States. And so it gets market cap weighted. It pushes more money into those companies anytime anybody invests in the S&P 500. So we've got the S&P 500, 4% pullback for the year. Big deal, right? I start drooling at 10% plus and that's that's good buying opportunities. We've got a 7% pullback in the in the NASDAQ and RSP, if you look at an index or uh, an ETF called RSP, it's Invesco Equal Weighted, s and p five hundred where the idea there is, is that okay, I want exposure to five hundred companies, the largest five hundred companies in America, but I want an equal exposure i want if i if I've got five hundred bucks i'm going to have a dollar in every company that's only down two point three percent because you get more exposure to other parts of the market such as more exposure to oil stocks and financials and things like that. It also goes down the line a little bit because you're going to get a little bit of mid-cap exposure in that. It's a little bit more diversified. It was a winner last year and so far winning again this year. Now, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, this name is ridiculous. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, and you can look at an ETF, DIA, the Diamonds, Here's the holdings in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. What do you think of when you think of industrial stocks? I I think of Caterpillar. I think of anything that can build a road, a bridge, a building, create a plant, right? You know, kind of in construction orient. Well, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is 8.6% United Healthcare, it's almost 7% Goldman Sachs. And then you get into 6.8% Home Depot. 5.68% 5.68% Microsoft, 4.7.2% p- in McDonald's, 4.3% Amgen, 42 Salesforce. Finally, you get into 4.19% Caterpillar, 4% Boeing, and 3.98% Honeywell. That's kind of the top 10 holdings there, right? Not very industrial oriented, right? So I think a lot of people, when they thought a $3.7 trillion dollar Package um, our fiscal stimulus package was going to get passed. Or wait, is that what? Gosh, now see, now I'm even confused because it was what ended up being passed was so much smaller than what was originally proposed. Um, that I think some people bought the Dow thinking they're going to get a lot of exposure to industrial stocks. That's not really the case. You'd have to go more of an industrial ETF. Um, and then let's go to the QQQ, the NASDAQ. So the NASDAQ. Um, Back in the '90s, was very, very tech. I mean, you had all these companies that were dot comers, that um, anything tech oriented, that wasn't even making a profit as part of the Nasdaq. So let's go. Let's go to the top twelve holdings in the Nasdaq. So people sell their their Apple or their Microsoft stock or Amazon or Facebook. They're like, well, I'm going to just diversify. I'm going to go into the QQQ and get a little bit more tech diversification. It's still twelve percent Apple. 9.6% Microsoft, 6.88% Amazon, 5% Facebook, 4.3% Tesla, 4% Nvidia. Then you get the Googles at a little over 3.5% each, Cisco at 1.8, Adobe 1.7%. And in the last couple, 1.72% of your money's in Broadcom and 1.68% is in Pepsi. Pepsi, that doesn't match. <laughs> so it's kind of like these indexes have gotten a little bit quirky, um, and tech oriented. All right. So one of the things that I talk to clients about all the time when they want to start teaching their kids about investing is, okay, how do you get more broad exposure and be able to use ETFs? Cause if you go to Fidelity and, and Schwab and TD Ameritrade, they all have ETFs that you can buy without trading costs. And so you can take a small dollar amount and invest it in an ETF, and then make sure that dividends are being reinvested. And boom, you've taught a kid how to get broad market exposure. Now, a potentially better way to do this for a younger person that wants to be more aggressive and have more diversification is is something like a total stock market index approach, like VTI, Vanguard's total stock market ETF. And so what that does is instead of the S&P 500, which I've told you is not really 500, companies. It's mostly 50 companies and very tech-oriented. And not a lot of exposure to mid-cap. And for a younger person, that's very aggressive. You want some small and mid-cap exposure. So Vanguard Total Stock Market Index, which they, it tracks the performance of the of really the US Total Market Index that measures the investment return of the overall market. So it's going to take a much larger sampling of companies and go down into the large, mid, small, micro cap stocks traded on the New York Stock Exchange and Nasdaq. All right. So it's it's not going to just like QQQ, that's Nasdaq traded companies. Um so in VTI, you're gonna get a 19.5% exposure into mid cap stocks and a 6.33% exposure into small cap stocks. Large cap stocks have outperformed both over the last 10 years and I think that starts to rotate. The same with some international... Give give international time. I don't know about you know this year because of COVID and political issues, but fundamentally, international stocks are, are much better priced than U.S. stocks right now, and you're seeing a lot of money managers say that. So in VTI, you're still going to get 5.7% in Apple and a little over 5% in Microsoft, but then it, it starts to become more diversified. You get 3% in uh, Amazon, 2% in Google, one point seven five percent in Tesla. So it gets smaller and smaller. You get a much more broad diversification of the overall stock market, some of like the total stock market index. That's where we are. The pullback's not as bad as you think in the overall stock market versus the SP five hundred. Inflation obviously a big issue, right? I mean, this is what you're seeing right now is the idea that the Fed will have to raise rates four times this year. To get ahead of inflation. Remember, what they do is they control the, the lending rates, the, basically overnight lending rates between banks, right? Um, not necessarily the 10 year treasury bond, which directly correlates to mortgages. There's a little bit more supply demand issue that goes on there, but you're seeing the 10 year treasury rise a lot in yields in terms of a percentage move. And as I told you before the end of the year last year, expect the 10 year treasury to above 2% before the end of the year easily. Um, So when you have a lot of money out there chasing a few number of goods, you're going to get price increases. And we've got a supply chain issue still that lingers on and a lot of money out there. So what are some items that can calm inflation? Because I don't see inflation getting massively out of hand. I see a period of time where we're going to see more inflation than we've seen in the past because it really has been 15 years of very low inflation. We have globalization. We have factories building you know, overseas and taking advantage of low wages and creating the same goods for a cheaper amount, which has kept costs low. Um, some of the inflation measurements that we're seeing have to do with used car prices and RV prices and ATVs. Because people got stimulus checks and... Uh, let's think about the PPP money, right? Remember the PPP loans? Just about every business owner in 2020 did the PPP loan because in April, the market corrected so significantly. Everybody was staying at home. Nobody was going to spend money anywhere and everybody was bracing for a 08, 09 crisis plus. So heck yeah, almost every single business owner I know filled out a PPP loan. They got money, a bunch of cash, that they did not end up needing, unless you were in hotel, travel, leisure, um, and in the restaurant business, that you didn't really end up needing it. So most of that money went to work in in expanding businesses. People used money to buy other businesses. They used it to, um, you know, buy equipment so that they could do more. And so all of this money got dispersed, and then business ballooned and now people can't find workers. And so you have this mass resignation situation where finally the lower to mid-class is saying, hey, okay, we see that money out there. We see the growth in revenue, but we want, we want, we want our share. And there will be resignation fatigue eventually, right? You're having an adjustment of wages. That's not going to last forever, and guess what? Companies can afford it. We have net operating margins at one of the highest levels ever. And so companies can afford to pay some more wages. Now that will eat into earnings a little bit, but it's still other on top of that, the economy is still doing really, really well. So there's expected revenue growth. So I wouldn't say the stock market is drastically undervalued or anything like that. If you look at some of the tech that has pulled back, it's already pulled back pretty significantly. You've got to move down to 4% on the S&P 500. The majority of that has come from technology. Um, so other things that will again, calm inflation over a period of time. We aren't going to have this PPP money. It, it, it's, most of it has been out there and been spent. Now that's created some velocity, some momentum in the economy that's going to last a while but not to this extent. The supply chain will eventually get corrected. Uh, Omicron is spreading like wildfire out there. I think it feels like half of <laughs> the people I talk to at minimum have COVID right now. Um, and luckily it's pretty mild. And so then also you, you typically... First of all, in a rising rate environment, stocks tend to do pretty good, but also the Federal Reserve has shown over history that it's been a little bit behind the curve and you usually see a recession at some point after some rate increases, but there's no like exact time frame, right? Recessions are just positive and normal part of economic situations over time and they're healthy. It shakes out the excess out of the economy, it shakes out... It, it, there's been way too much speculation out there between meme stocks and garbage uh, cryptos like the ones with dogs on it. Garbage, in my opinion. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. That's where people are shoving their extra cash that they got from stimulus checks and everything else. Um, there will be some resignation fatigue because as the PPP money kind of slows down a little bit, and the stimulus wasn't as large as we expected from the roads and bridges and everything else. I mean, there's there's not a lot that Biden is going to get past here, right? There's probably going to be a, a bunch of Republicans elected next time too. So um, I don't expect this. I, I expect a little bit higher inflation, but not. we're not going to continue to see like 7% numbers, um, in my opinion. At the same time, the economy is very strong and healthy right now. And interest rates are still relatively low, even after this move up, which makes stocks pretty attractive in the long run. Now, bonds, if we look at the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index, we're looking at a decline so far of the year of 2.3%. So a lot of people are going to be looking at their 401k statements at the end of January going, oh my gosh, even my bond funds are down. Again, second year in a row. Even municipal bonds, if we look at (coughs) CMF, which is California Municipal Bond ETF, exchange-traded fund, that's down about 1.5% after being positive last year. So when it comes to inflation, it doesn't alter my investment strategy when it comes to stocks too much. right? You might want to add commodities and make sure you have more exposure to materials and things like that. Um, but you still maintain diversification. You still look at, gosh, stocks are the best hedge against inflation ever. So sticking with stocks makes sense. And yeah, they have corrections. Big deal. That's when you buy more of them. Bonds is the tougher issue right now in a raising right environment, right? When you got the egg down three percent and California muni- muni's down about a 1.5%. So... It's hard to do any bond alternatives in a taxable account because you probably have gains. But in retirement accounts, IRAs, Roths, 401ks, 403bs, there should be some alternatives. In your 401k accounts, 403bs and things like that, you can always look at stable value funds that yields almost as much as most core bond funds without that interest rate risk. So as interest rates rise, you're not going to see those fall in value. Um, And floating rate funds. Those are, those are some other bond alternatives that can be out there too. Uh, and a little bit of extra cash is always nice, right? That way you can take advantage of those stocks, corrections, and buy even more. Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcases Always Packed Pass. Or the wait, I get to choose from 100,000 trips pass, the Willoughby, the beach, city, mountains, or all free pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirado Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. Learn more at InspiradoPass.com. Welcome back into the show. I'm your host, Chad Bird, Certified Financial Planner. you need help with your financial planning, your retirement planning, we can help with a team of... Oh gosh, it's growing, it's over. 60-plus certified financial planners. we got offices all over the Bay Area, Seattle, Chicago, Utah. Uh, obviously, the Vancouver slash Portland, Oregon office. Um, so check it out. You can find an advisor near you. Um, retirement planning. So 28 years that I've been in the business, that's what I really specialized in, retirement estate planning, since I started at a young age, but with older people, working with my grandfather. And... You guys have heard me do the show probably on, uh, the seven tests for retirement planning, things that you need to think about before you, you walk in in this era of great, the great resignation <laughs> that we call it. There's, that's why so many people they're because of low interest rates and massive monetary stimulus, their stocks and real estate gone have gone so high. They're like, okay, yeah, we can finally retire. I don't want to deal with this COVID garbage anymore. I used to, I used to like dealing with people in person and now zoom zoom fatigue is getting to me so i'm just going to retire well it's a very important decision to make and there's a lot of tests that you have to go through i have the seven tests i'll go through them real quickly um you know you got to start with your expenses and that's the basic expenses that you have to keep the lights on in your home and the food on the table but what about your entertainment your golfing your travel your ph- philanthropy? What are those plans that are going to continue to motivate you and make you feel fulfilled in retirement? What is that going to cost you? Are you aware of healthcare costs? Medicare Part A is free. You got to pay for Medicare Part B. But then there's IRMA where you could be paying four times as much as your neighbor for the same Medicare Part B coverage. And then you need supplemental insurance on top of that, right? So you got to really test your expenses. And some of that means practicing retirement taking a sabbatical, using that vacation time to figure out what you're going to do when you don't have a job that takes 8 to 10 hours of your day. And and you know, may or may not leave you feeling fulfilled, but that's where your social network is often. So, the next step is once you have all of your expenses dialed in and you you have a basic idea of taxes that you're going to pay based on where your money is. If you're all in 401k, that's 100% taxable. Social Security is likely going to be 85% taxable. You got to do some testing there. But the linear cash flow model is that if you have a really, really mediocre returns in retirement, like we did from 2007 at the top of the Great Recession to 2017, where you got a globally diversified portfolio that only averaged 5.5% return um, over that period of time because of that huge, long, deep recession that we had, can you survive if you had? If you look at a two and a half to three percent inflation, two and a half percent on all costs, but five percent inflation on your healthcare costs, do you have enough money to last till age one hundred at a very conservative rate of return? And I've gone through the math and other shows on how I get to that number, and usually it's because you know stocks are, let's say, a mediocre period of time would be eight percent instead of eleven. Your bonds are only earning about 2%, as you can see right now, and then cash only around 1%. So a diversified portfolio, that's, that's where I'm getting the numbers from, right? So the second test is, is testing your portfolio for major market corrections. What happens? How do you look at your portfolio and say, okay, if the SP 500 is down 20%, what is my portfolio going to be down? And do I have the cash reserves and enough dividends and in, in, for my stocks and interest for my bonds and income for my real estate? And pension and social security to make sure that I won't have to sell any of my assets during a rough market period. I want to let them stay there. I want to let them continue to pay me dividends or interest or income. And I don't want to sell shares so that all my shares are there when the recovery occurs because it always does. So that means you have to set aside enough safe money and have the proper diversification in your portfolio. Wealth management Becomes participating in the upside, but limiting your downside. And that's through strategic amount of cash. And would you rebalance and when you sell, when you take money out? And then taxes. Once you kind of get that idea of asset allocation, you get more detailed in what your taxes are and where you're going to draw your money from. Do you hold off on your IRAs and 401ks or do you start drawing on them right away? Do you do IRA to Roth conversions in the early part of retirement? All of that comes into play. And, and then once you have your tax bill known and your, your withdrawal strategy known, that is, again, going to alter your overall expenses for the first several years of retirement. So you go back and make sure you have three years worth of portfolio draws and safe money. Not expenses, but portfolio draws. And so you have to do a lot of planning up front and tax analysis up front to get to that figure, which is one of the most important things that'll get you through rough market periods. And then you can do what's called Monte Carlo simulations where it takes a look at your asset allocation and it puts it through thousands of different market scenarios, high inflation, low inflation, mediocre returns, good returns, good returns in the beginning, bad returns late in life. Um, it just, it just basically can give you a success rate. Now, most advisors do Monte Carlo simulations incorrectly. Most of them do it incorrectly. You have to set up your financial planning program to make sure that the accounts are being rebalanced properly, that the certain amount of cash is always being set aside to, sim- to simulate withdrawal strategies. But it can't if you can pass the linear cash flow model and you can pass a Monte Carlo simulation of 85% plus, and you've created that three years worth of portfolio draws in, in cash and a, a decent allocation, then we would say as certified financial planner practitioners, we would bless your retirement. You're good to go. Go ahead and walk in and say, take this job and shove it. I mean, that's, don't, don't burn your bridges, though, because you never know when you might need to go back and do a job if you screw something up or spend too much money. But um, y- you also need to do a couple of different other simulations, though, to make sure that you know what your family's plan is. If a spouse or you need nursing home care that does not get covered by Medicare, so you do some long-term care simulations. But what if you can't pass those tests? What if, oh, I don't have enough for a linear cash flow test, let alone a Monte Carlo simulation? Well, you either work longer or cut expenses, downsize your house, or a combination. So you have a lot of people moving overseas. And I, I kind of like looking at some of these, um, I see these articles probably every three or four months. The best places to retire. The cheapest countries for a comfortable retirement. This is one that I saw by uh, Liana Roberts. Um, that was looks like it was released today, in fact. And so they kind of rank all of these countries 12 to number one. And so it's, it's kind of interesting. A lot of these countries are really on my bucket list for travel right now. Um, and see, that's one thing that I've realized about my retirement is, you know, my grandfather worked into his 80s and really loved his clients and his business. And I love the business and love my clients. And when I was younger building the business, I did, I did not travel at all. And so I have been lately. Um, and boy, have I gotten good at it. I mean, I got these Espresso uh, screens, traveling screens. If you haven't checked these out, I, it took me a lot of trial and error in terms of how I want to travel. I was literally over COVID when we were traveling, traveling with 24-inch monitors and boxes because I have to have three screens to work. And we were traveling a, a lot. Because my house was under construction, the kids were doing Zoom, and so you know we were bouncing Airbnbs all over the place, and so now I've got the kind of the remote work down pat, and um, really really enjoy it. So number twelve, Thailand. Haven't been to Thailand yet. Probably going to go next year. Peru. I would love to go skiing in Peru. And Peru is winter. Um, Now. We've got a couple of ties here. Peru, Mexico, and Nicaragua. have heard about some really good surfing, believe it or not, in Nicaragua. I've got a client that um, lives in Colombia like a king. And he Airbnbs out. He sold a bunch of his properties in the Northwest, kept one in Sun River, Oregon, which is right by Mount Bachelor, which on a bluebird powder day is one of the best mountains you can ever ride. Um. He loves Colombia. I mean, he has a total blast. I love watching his Facebook adventures. Always has a smile on his face. Ecuador, my uh, father, stepmother, and two of my siblings live in Ecuador. Now, they live outside of Cuenca. They were living in Cuenca for a while. Not too much of a fan there, but there's other places in uh, Ecuador that I liked a lot, like Baños, which which sounds like bathroom, but it's not. It's kind of this really cool adventure town with tons of zip lining, waterfalling, canyoning, um amazing restaurants from all over the country. Um so there are some cool places in Ecuador. Obviously, the coast is a launch pad for uh um the Galapagos. Sri Lanka, haven't been there, that's not necessarily on the bucket list. Malaysia have heard of people retiring there. Bolivia is number four. Cambodia is a number four. Is also a tie with Bolivia. Bali, which is really high in the list that I want to go to, is number two. And number one is Vietnam. And this is interesting, but because it's only been the recent years where I've really wanted to travel to Vietnam, there's some really beautiful things in Vietnam that I want to go check out. And apparently, it's like one of the number one places to go live abroad. Now, What's interesting about this is that there, there's so many things that you have to deal with tax wise and moving things over and dual citizenship. Um, like it took years for my one brother to be able to legally ship a container of his stuff over to Ecuador. Um, you know, banking can be an issue. All of those different things that you got to think about before you go. But if your retirement plan isn't working and you got to cut expenses, Maybe it's retiring somewhere else, outside of the Bay Area, for example. After a day like uh Tuesday, January 18th, we had a market pullback. And people are just used to, I mean, gosh, we had, what, 70 record highs in 2021? I mean, the market just pushed forward, pushed forward, pushed forward, right? And a lot of that had to do because even though money is still flowing into bond funds, which is interesting, we had more flowing into stocks. But I like to remind people after a rough day that look at when you look at some of the, the rough trading days and you think, oh, this is the start, well, if you can get that emotional and make that much of a change in your investment strategy from one day of trading, you're typically making major mistakes. 24 of the 25 worst trading days were in one month proximity of the 25 best trading days. So to give you an example, in, in 08, um which is you know the the great recession started in october of 2007 so october of 2008 october 13th the market went up 11.6% in one day right oh it's over it's it, the recession's finally over it's back to the races well 2 days later the market was down 9% a lot of volatility out there um and so sometimes you just have to ignore it. Now, you always want to make sure that if you're working and building wealth, you have six to 12 months worth of expenses and cash. And if you're five years from retirement or in retirement, you have three years where the portfolio draws. Not expenses, but portfolio draws in cash. And then you start to have a plan and then these types of days do not stress you out. Eight of the 25 worst trading days ever were immediately followed the next day by one of the 25 best trading days. So um, I mean, you can see that, uh, let's see, November 20th, 2008, market goes down 6.7%. November 24th, 2008, up 6.5%. You see what I mean? So right now, media is just clickbait. There's there's no, really no good media out there, especially CNBC. is such garbage. Uh, I, I like Bloomberg a lot, but CNBC is just like... Constant emotionally draining show, whether it 's the morning now or the fast money it's it 's just all garbage, and it adds the emotion to the market and the worst thing that you can do is be emotional when it comes to stocks. If you have a bunch of cash that goes in the market right now, just pick up a, a period of time and put it in if you're not comfortable in putting it all in right now, then say, okay, you know what i'm going to invest. Equal amounts every two weeks for four months until it's invested. Now, if there's a significant market correction, I'm going to accelerate it, but I'm not going to decelerate it. I'm not going to say, "Oh, the market's down; it looks like it's going to go down further." And you're making a guess, and then you stop, and then you wish a year later you would just would have just bought. Almost every single time that I've dollar cost averaged in, instead of just putting the money to work in a portfolio, I've regretted because the market's 70% of the time it's positive. So 70% of the time you are going to regret not just putting the money in. Now, when you go through a year like last year with 70 all-time highs and it's not super cheap and you've got some of the indexes being controlled by tech stocks, I get the averaging in for sure. We're doing a lot of it. And we're doing a lot more specific uh, investing versus just the SP 500 right now. So keep that in mind because Again, tw- let me just say this again. 24 of the 25 worst trading days were in one month proximity of the 25 best trading days. So that just period of the volatility. Eight of the 25 worst days were immediately followed the next day by one of the 25 best days in history. And that's looking at stocks over the last 20 years. So you've had some days in 08 and 09 where you had 6 to 9% losses in one day. Um, if we look back in more recent history, uh, let's take a look at 2011, um, where we are almost at full recovery after the Great Recession. We had August 18th, 2011, stock market was down 4.5%. But a month, exactly a month later, the market rallied 4.3%. So timing the market is not important when you're younger. And you're trying to build wealth. You systematically continue to buy in your 401k, your other brokerage accounts. And if the market cracks, you find ways to buy even more. Now, timing the market is way more important in retirement, not by being all in or all out, but making sure you don't sell any assets when they're down, whether that's stocks, bonds, or real estate, that you've got enough cash set aside, dividends from stocks, interest from bonds, and income from real estate so that you're not selling stuff when it's down. Because if you sell your stocks when they're down, you have less shares kicking off dividends and less shares that are going to participate in the recovery. So you can be more aggressive these days and have higher exposure to equities than your parents or grandparents as long as you have three years worth of portfolio draws and cash to get through those tough times. And that's part of that retirement testing that I was talking about before really dial in your expenses on how you want to live, what's going to make you feel fulfilled. Create that income strategy. Which accounts am I going to draw from first? Am I going to do some IRA to rock conversions? When am I going to take Social Security? Should I put it off till age 70? Should I take it at full retirement age? What about my spouse? What about long-term care issues? Everything has to come into play. And go into a very detailed cash flow model so you can see... This is my income, this is my expenses. These are my taxes. How long is my money going to last? How much i 'm going to draw from my portfolio each year and have that in a very safe spot? Having a plan it makes you it makes it so you can ignore these market movements you won 't even care anymore. You probably listen less and less to shows like this because you 'll know you have a plan. You can find me. Just go to ChadBurton.com. That's ChadBurton.com. Facebook, LinkedIn, iTunes, or any of the links for the podcast. It's all at ChadBurton.com. Have a great day. Please tell a friend about the show.